0: All right, well, I invite you to turn to uh, the book of Ezra, and we're going to look at Ezra chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to talk about opposition. Uh, in your notes, I have the title of the Velvet Hammer, because we're going to look at two types of oppositions today. When you're coming back to Christ after being in the wilderness for a while, you may encounter some opposition. In fact, Jesus indicated this would be the case, uh, especially with the apostle Peter, you know, he lovingly informed Peter, look, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And um, then he says, you're going to make a comeback. You're going to make a comeback. In the book of Revelation, Jesus um, stands at the door and he knocks. And he knocks on the door of a church that was lukewarm. And Jesus lovingly invited himself back into that person's life, indicating this person is, needs to be renewed. And, you know, it would be nice if none of us ever needed to be renewed, right? Because we were always on this upward trajectory and we were doing so well. But reality is sometimes we need to be renewed because we've been away from Jesus for a week, a month, a year, in one case, a decade. And the great thing about the book of Ezra is it talks about the exiles coming back to the land after being in exile for 70 years. And God renews the nation. And the whole book of Ezra is about God renewing the nation and how we can be renewed and restored as well if we've wandered in the wilderness for a while. Now, to set this up, I want to uh, tell you a hypothetical story. This is purely hypothetical. But I want you to imagine uh, a young man who comes to Christ in college and grows in his faith. To a lot of different parachurch ministries and through a great local church, he grows and he fully commits himself to Christ. One year after graduation, he marries an equally committed follower of Jesus, and they begin to start their family. But it's really hard at first because they both have student loan debt, and the crushing weight of that debt makes them depend upon God even more. At the same time, uh, the husband begins to start a small subcontractor business. And that business is really hard. Two kids come. They've got debts, they've got kids, they've got a, a fledgling small business, and they work hard for eight years. And then in, in the ninth year, there is some success. And in the 10th year, it's a raging success. And now that it's a raging success, things change. Um, Money begets new friends. New friends lead to new parties. New parties lead to new habits. New habits lead to a distrust among the husband and the wife. And the husband notices that other women are attracted to him because of the money he's making. As his business grows, uh, thoughts of Jesus and family and faithfulness and commitment to Christ begin to slide into the background, and it's all about the rush of success and friends. And meanwhile, his marriage is crumbling, and his inner life is edging toward the abyss. No problem, he thinks, no problem, because my success is gonna insulate me from the problems that could come up in my life. And then disaster happens, because his business fails. And as he hits absolute rock bottom, he gets down on his knees and says, Jesus, man, I need you. I've been away from you for a long time, and I need you now. I want to I get back on the path of faithfulness. And now comes the problem. Because he goes to his business partners and he tells them what he's done, renewing his faith in Christ. He goes to his His wife and tells her what he's done renews his faith in Christ he goes to some of his friends he tells them about what he's done renews his faith in Christ and rather than going awesome they go like this we'll see we'll see or some some might even say are you kidding me you're getting all religious on us now you've been you've been the party animal for the past four or five years and you're getting all religious on us now seriously and so with biting contempt and cynicism, they begin to dissuade him from the decision that he's made to come back to faith. This is what, exactly what happens in Ezra chapter 4. People are coming, coming back to this place of faith, and they encounter opposition. Now, some of you may be in that place this morning. Some of you may not. And if you, if you have not come away and you're here, you're doing fine. I encourage you to listen to this story with different ears. Because you undoubtedly know people who've been away from the faith and are coming back, and you need to know how to respond to them. So no matter where you are, there's an important message here for those who are coming back to faith. So I want to look at the oppositions that people face, and the first opposition is is the velvet kind, soft opposition. When you come back to the faith, some will lure you into compromise through very comfortable but very false worldviews. So let's see how this begins. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were rebuilding the temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel is the leader of these 50,000 exiles. They approached Zerubbabel and and, and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Now, these, these adversaries say this in a very nice voice. They say, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. They're saying this with a very, very nice, congenial voice. And At first glance, it sounds like a great proposal. You know, these, these people are building their temple. Let's help them because they probably looked, they looked tired and discouraged, so we're going we're to help them build this temple. But Ezra informs us that they were adversaries. And so here's Ezra's response, and this is a, a rather shocking response if you don't know the background. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us and building a house to our God, But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Wow. (laughs) That sounds sort of insensitive. Like, was Zerubbabel having a bad day? You know, did did he just not get a whole lot of sleep? Did he look at his Apple Watch and think, oh, I I only got an hour of deep sleep last night. I'm tired. I mean, mean, why is he responding in such a negative way? His response was entirely appropriate to the circumstances. So let me, let me tell you the background. King Solomon died at the age of 60 in 961 BC. And the house of Israel became divided. There was the north and the south. Israel, the 10 tribes were to the north, they had 19 kings, all of them were bad, some of them bad to the bone. And in the south there was the kingdom of Judah and there were 20 kings there, eight of them were good and some were amazingly good. And for the next uh, 200 years, it was it was messy between these two divided nations. There was a big civil war. Finally, the northern kingdom was defeated in 722 by Shalmaneser the the fifth, who was the king of Assyria. If I get my statue made, I want it just like that, <laughs> just like that, with lots of lots of hair, you know, and, uh, he, he defeated them in uh, 9, 722 BC, and uh, he carried off the exiles into Assyria, into cities that were specifically reserved for them. But he left the land desolate, and that's not a good idea. So he took the foreigners from Assyria and replaced them back into the land of Israel. The problem was there weren't very many of them, and so the wild animals begin to, to grow in the land. And notice what happens in 2 Kings 725, uh, 1725. The beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, I think this is a statement about God allowing the lions in the land to be the instruments of judgment to the foreigners who had come back into the land, and God's not saying, lion, you go kill that guy right there. It's a statement of God allowing something to happen as an instrument of judgment, but it shocked the king. And so King Shalmaneser, uh, his successor, King Sargon, says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Jewish priests back from Assyria back into the land, and we'll teach the people the proper worship of God in the land, and we'll get the lions to stop eating our people. So he sent the priests back into the land. So the priests go back into the land, and yes, they worship the true God of Israel, but they also worship all the other local gods of Israel as well. And that was a problem. Because as they're worshiping these local gods, they begin to do some horrible things. For instance, they start the practice of sacrificing little children to the local god, Adramelech. And so pretty soon, all the little kids in the land are being sacrificed and killed to this God. It was horrible. It was a wretched practice that was going on back then. So these these people have been mixing worship of God, the true God, with worship of the false gods, which you can't do. They're trying to. And they've been doing that for 75 years. And these are the people who come to, to Zerubbabel and say, "Hey, hey, can, can we help you uh, like build your temple? Like, like we worship the same God you do." And Ezra says, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, no, you're not going to help us because you are worshiping a bunch of false gods." So, let me contextualize this for you. Let's say that there is a group in our town that uh, calls themselves Christian, but Everybody knows they're doing horrible things to kids. And let's say we're building an, a new sanctuary. And they say, hey, can, can we, we come help, help you, like, build your sanctuary? And everybody knows in the city they're doing bad things to kids. Well, what would we say? I don't think so. No, we'll, 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 we'll do this. We, we, we don't align with any of your values. That's what Zerubbabel is saying. It's entirely appropriate to the circumstances. Now, why are these adversaries even proposing this? Well, they're proposing this because they realize that the political tides are changing. And these, these new returned exiles have the blessing of King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Great of Persia. And they want in the political power. They don't care about building the temple. They want, they want the power. And and Zerubbabel refuses to cooperate. You have nothing to do with us and building a house to our God, but we alone will build the house of the Lord God of, of Israel. Now, time for a quick takeaway. If you're away from the faith and you come back, don't be surprised if people will lure you into something that is not the authentic Christian faith. Don't be surprised about that because that sort of thing happens all the time. It happened back in Ezra's day. It's happened for the past 2,000 years of church history. You come back to the faith and somebody wants to lure you into a false form of that faith. It happens, happens a lot. So there are two, two kinds of false teaching out there. One is soft side false teaching, and the other, other one is hard side false teaching. And when you're coming back to the faith, it's easy to be pulled into one of the two. So soft side false teaching is is sort of the harder one to deal with because soft side false teaching takes legitimate biblical truth, it distorts that truth, and it turns it into something wrong. And there are many varieties of that. I can give you one. One is prosperity theology. You know, the Bible is very clear about a legitimate general principle. If you sow generously into God's kingdom work, you will reap generously. That's a general biblical principle. And the principle doesn't say how you'll reap. I mean, it could be that you sow generously into ministry, uh, kingdom work, and, and you reap happiness. It could be you sow generously and you reap joy in your marriage. It could be that you sow generously and you reap your material things not falling apart for a while. It could be that you sow generously and you reap financial results as well. doesn't matter how it happens. The general principle is there. If you sow generously, you will reap generously from the Lord. It's a beautiful, wonderful principle. Prosperity theology twists that around, and it says, if you sow generously to my ministry... God will bless you materially in this way, and sadly, that is a philosophy that's growing all over, over the world today, and I can remember one time Cindy and I were at, a, at a, a dinner party in Dallas, and this guy had, this is many years ago, this guy had come back to the Lord, and he, I said, well, what brought you back to Christ? He said, he said, the guarantee of riches. I said, seriously? He was going to a very big upcoming megachurch in Dallas, and he says, yeah, I would not be back with Christ if it weren't for the, pro- the, the promise of money. Wow. That's, that's crazy. I didn't say that to him. I... But, but here's an interesting thing. The world has taken note of this because Edward Luce, the American editor of the Financial Times of London, which is not a Christian magazine by any stretch, uh, he visited Lakewood Church in Houston, and the Financial Times wrote about his experience there. And Luce, who's not a believer, the best I can tell, nailed the problem with prosperity theology brilliantly. Here's what he says. In in the American version of prosperity theology, you've got a complete reversal of the theological order. Biblical Christianity begins with the priority of God. God brings glory to himself by saving people through through the blood of his son. So God is glorified. In prosperity movements, that's exactly reverse. God is not central. You are central. Amen. And God is the great admirer of you and me. Yes. So one well-known preacher says, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is, is Satan. So, so here's Luce writing as a non-believer going into a prosperity church saying, this is wrong. Like, like this, this, this should not be. This should not be. Uh, There are other examples. Prosperity theology is one of them. Uh, Moralistic, therapeutic deism is another one. Big name, fancy name for one thing. The idea is that sin does not matter. Sin doesn't matter. God God loves you. Your sin does not matter. God is not going to be that involved in your life except to bless you. So be good and merit His blessing and good things will happen to you. I mean, those are just two of a, of a portfolio of very popular things. It's soft side false teaching. There's also the hard side false teaching. And hard side false teaching is taking Christianity and blending it or attempting to blend it with a non-Christian religion. Like Christianity and Islam or Christianity and Hinduism or Christianity and Buddhism. There's a church in Chicago called the Bodhi Center. And the Bodhi Center mixes Christianity and Buddhism. It looks on the outside like an on-fire evangelical church. And it is entirely a mixture of Buddhism and Christianity. Here's the point. When you're coming back to faith, when you're coming back to faith after being away for a while, there will be people who want to swerve you away from truth into something other than truth. It's like... it's like. If they can get you to do something other than have Jesus at the center, it's okay. But once you say, no, Jesus is at the center, you're going to invite pushback and difficulty. So here's uh, now hard opposition. Now we go from the velvet part to the hammer part. Others will use aggressive legal means to frustrate you or shut you down. So here's verse four. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So um, here are these nice people who were so helpful. Now the scowls come on their face, and now they wanna roll up their sleeves for a fist fight. And first they disparage them with verbal opposition. Um, so uh, the people of the land discourage the people of Judah. And and basically what happens is they, they spy on them. They spy on them. In fact, one of, the, one of the words that's used here is suggestive of this. Kings in the ancient world always had their spies out. So I have the picture of these cameras. These are cameras in London. And this is like one street corner of a zillion street corners in in London where they've got these cameras and there are people somewhere in London who are looking at massive banks of TV screens looking at everything. So if somebody steals something at Brown's Hotel and then runs down the street headed toward the river, you can follow that person on all those cameras, never losing sight of them. Yeah, so people in the ancient world didn't have that, obviously, but kings had their spies who were just as effective at watching the movements of people. And so that's what's happening to the builders, the builders of, the, of the temple. As they're building, the spies are out you know, with their metaphorical binoculars or telescopes looking, or their d- metaphorical drones l- l- looking at them, spying on them. And then they actively discourage them with, with, with some very threatening words, and the, the verb tells us how they did this. The Hebrew verb bala means to picket somebody with intent to wear them out. Our daughter had a big tree fall on her house six months ago, and she's been working with the insurance company. And I called her yesterday, and she said, Dad, I'm just exhausted. The insurance company picks at this and picks at that and picks at this and picks at that. Meanwhile, we have mounting bills, and they keep on picking at this and picking at that. I'm exhausted. I want to give up. That's what these people are doing. They're picking at them with with verbal discouragements. And it lasts for, get this, 16 years. How many of you could put up with that for 16 years? Not many. They were exhausted with all the spying, and with all the verbal picking. And then the book of Ezra gives us a window into just how hard this was. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I want to read the first several. Uh, Okay, now what's going to happen is Ezra, who writes this, is going to use the legal wranglings of Zerubbabel's day and show that they're the same as the legal wranglings in his day. And so, so now he steps forward in the days of Artaxerxes, and he's going to list all these names. And as you read this, it's, this, is, this is like ponderous to read this. And what Ezra's doing is he's want, he wants us to feel the weight of the legal wranglings. And if you've ever been in, in legal trouble or, or faced the legal system, you know how difficult it can be to deal with, with documents and, and check figures. It's hard. And so, let me knit it out for you. The Samaritans write three letters, one to Ahasuerus, known as Xerxes. He doesn't read it. It's ignored. And then uh, they write another letter. Uh, It, too, is ignored. And then they write a third letter to Artaxerxes, and it's responded to. And the letter essentially says this. The letter says, King, these Jews have a terrible history of rebellion. So, um you better watch out and stop what they're doing. Otherwise, they are going to rebel, and you're going to lose this entire province. The king writes back and says, I've checked the records, and you're right. They have a terrible history of rebellion. So shut down the work until I can find the decree that Cyrus the Great has made. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it says that the Samaritans came with horses and armed soldiers. For 16 years, they're struggling with the opposition of the people at the land. So back to Zerubbabel's time, uh, they stop working on the temple, and nothing gets done from 538 B.C. to 520 B.C. until Haggai gets people back on track. And what are they doing for 16 years? They're spinning their wheels for 16 years. When you come back, to the Lord, after a time in the wilderness, don't be surprised if people come against you with hard, hammer-like opposition. I just finished reading uh, Devin Brown's uh, biography of C.S. Lewis, and he he makes the statement that when C.S. Lewis and his brother Warnie came back to Christ, they were living in the kilns, which was a house owned by the two brothers and Mrs. Lewis, and uh, Mrs. Um, Moore, Mrs., um, um, Janie Moore, uh, which is C.S. Lewis's deceased friend. So the brothers come back to faith, and Janie Moore hits the fan, and she lambasts the brothers, saying, this communion thing you're going through is a blood feast. You're going to the blood feast again? Are you kidding me? You're going to church again? It's the blood feast again? Mocking C.S. Lewis and his brother. At the same time, C.S. Lewis's colleagues at Oxford University were criticizing him and preventing him from academic advancement because he was too popular a Christian. I've heard of people who come to Christ in the academic setting and they go public about their faith and they're denied tenure. Or others who have tenure are ostracized by members of their academic community because uh, they have faith in Christ. Hammer-type opposition often comes against people who are coming back to Christ. So that leads us to the main idea of the story. The main idea has to deal with how how should we feel about opposition as we we seek renewal. Well, here's the main idea. On the road to renewal, do not be surprised by opposition. It's going to happen, most likely. Instead, what you do is you ramp up grit and you pursue growth in the Spirit's power. Now, here's why I say don't be surprised. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.2. Dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening. Peter writes this to believers in Asia Minor who are suffering under the persecution of crazy King Nero. And they're they're getting a hammer-like opposition. Peter says, don't be surprised. This kind of thing happens. And then Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't be surprised. I mean, this is what they did to the prophets. Don't be surprised if this happens to you as well. Or Jesus says in Matthew 10, they'll hand you over to the councils and flog you in their synagogues. Talk about a hammer-like opposition. Uh, On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Hammer-like opposition. Don't be surprised. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will will be persecuted. Don't be surprised if opposition comes your way. So with that in mind, let's take a look at some some takeaways, how to respond to opposition. Well, the first takeaway is for those who've never left. I urge you, if you've never left the faith, to be the ministry of the bridge, all right? Jesus' ministry was a ministry of grace and truth. And there's a ministry that people have who are ministry-minded called the ministry of the bridge where they help people who are coming back to faith bridge that gap between their first days back in the faith and maturity. And let me tell you, people need that desperately. They need it desperately. Because a lot of people come back to the faith and get hit with this soft side opposition, the hard side opposition. They don't know what to do, and so they capitulate by making the wrong decision. And you, with the ministry of the bridge, you come at grace and truth. Grace says, I love you unconditionally. Truth says, (laughs) here's what the Bible says about that. Grace says, okay, you failed. Here's a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance. You need second chances. Truth says, however, you you need to walk this path. So you've got to have that ministry of the bridge. And many of you could be great bridge builders for people coming back to the faith. One of the things that... um, I am looking forward to in Cindy's testimony tomorrow night at Celebrate Recovery is that Cindy is the quintessential bridge builder, taking people who have been in pain, coming out of addiction, coming into recovery, and Cindy is the bridge builder into that place. Truth be told, she's been that for most of our marriage, taking hurting people and helping them be be that bridge back into a place of faithfulness. That bridge-building ministry is a great ministry, and many of you have not done that ministry yet, and you could, you just don't know that you're qualified, and you're qualified if you walk in grace and truth. And then here's, here's a second takeaway. Second takeaway is for those of you who are coming back. Take a fresh look at the G word, the G word. The G word is that good old word called Grit. And my favorite author on this is Angela Duckworth, and she, uh, she, pronoun- she de- defines this as passion and perseverance directed toward a singularly important goal. And for somebody who's coming back to the faith, the singularly important goal is fidelity to Christ. It's loving Jesus. It's being in a first love relationship with God. It's being a person who loves him heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the singularly important goal. But to get there will require grit. There's the grit of learning how to trust Him again. There's the grit of the spiritual disciplines. There's the grit of committing to the body of Christ when the body of Christ isn't perfect. It's grit. And so, I I really encourage you to embrace that ministry, um, that place of grit. And here's the final takeaway. The final takeaway is be patient be patient. Because when you're coming back to the faith, things seem awkward and quirky and weird and clunky, and it's hard to figure out how to do things again. But here's how spiritual growth works. It's grace plus plus truth plus time. Grace says, I love you unconditionally. Truth says, but (laughs) here's the path on which to go, and it takes time. i We'll close with this. I made a made a video for my dad um, for Father's Day. I hope he doesn't listen to this before Father's Day. Okay, Dad, don't listen to this. Shut the tape off if, if you're listening to this right now. But the, but the gift was uh, some Super 8 film that he took back when I was one, two years old. And and there I am learning how to walk. And wouldn't you know it, the moment he puts me up on my feet. I walked perfectly. Did you? It's amazing. <laughs> that didn't happen. I walk. I fall. I walk. I fall. I walk. I fall. I walk. I fall. I walk more steps than I fall. I walk more steps than I fall. Amen. I didn't walk instantly. You didn't walk instantly. None of you did. You didn't. None of you walked instantly. Amen. You didn't. Uh, did my parents berate me? You idiot, why are you you not walking? Everyone around you is walking, and you're not walking. What's wrong with you? Nobody did that. Now what what they said, it's okay, it's okay. You'll you'll get it, it'll it'll be okay, you'll, you'll get it. Be patient. On the road back to recovery, there'll be ups and downs, joys and sorrows, triumphs and tragedies. It's okay, it's okay. The formula for spiritual growth is grace plus truth plus time. And if you've got a loved one who's coming back, be patient with them. If your spouse is coming back, be patient with your spouse. Be patient. Spiritual growth is grace plus truth plus time. Let's stand for our closing prayer.